So, uh, welcome to um, my attempt to uh, talk about the history of Christianity in six weeks. Uh, um, we looked at this for many different ways, uh, how detailed it become. Uh, obviously, you can spend six weeks just on Augustine. Um, and so, it, it's... Let's see how this goes. I have a lot of slides here and a PowerPoint, um, so perhaps somehow, like a Dropbox thing if, <laughs> in the future. I, I'm, what I'm saying is I'm more than willing to share these. We can put it on the website. Uh, yeah, we could do that. Um, I have a brief handout. Uh, it doesn't have a lot of things on it. I try to fit everything on one page. What it does have, though, is uh, are the titles that I'm looking to do if we get to each of these titles over the next six weeks, and I'll uh, talk about why I've chosen these particular ones. Um, a lot of this, as I said, is going along with uh, Mark Knoll's book. Uh, Mark Knoll uh, wrote this book, uh, Turning Points, uh, and there's actually, it's up to a third edition, so you can imagine uh, that it's been popular. Uh, Mark uh, taught Sunday school uh, in a Presbyterian church uh, in Wheaton area, and uh, out of that came this book, and then he had some chance to do some more popular lectures around, so he uh, talked a lot about this. I had Mark Dole as a professor, uh, so I... I see when I read the book, I see some of the material that we had gone over in uh, various courses that uh, that I took by him or others. So um, Mark uh, starts the book, uh, and really the introduction to this entire course is probably sermons on Esther that we've heard. Uh, this is, if you can uh, imagine, this is a group of Christians that we're going to talk about today of course, who are living in a, a very, uh, an environment that's not supportive of Christianity, and they're still trying to figure out who they are. They're no longer uh, Jews uh, in that sense. So we're going to go ahead. Well, he starts his book, so just as we look at this, in saying uh, both verses and, and some reflection, he says, um, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Uh, nothing could now happen to the followers of Christ, Mark Knoll says, that lay outside the reach of his sovereignty. No experience that the church underwent, uh, no matter how glorious or how mundane, were irrelevant to the living word of God. So that's what we're looking for in these uh, this Sunday school group. Uh, he also quotes, uh, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations. Surely I will be with you always to the end of the age. You are my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Uh, Noel, in the beginning uh, introduction, um, talks about four reasons to uh, study church history. Uh, one is that Christianity especially has an irreducibly historical character to it that Christ... Uh, that, that, well, starting with Adam and Eve uh, in the Garden of Eden, uh, it's been historical all along. And, of course, the supreme element of that is to say, if Christ be not raised, <laughs> an, an event in history, our uh, faith is in vain. So a historical character, that there's prophecies 
um, interpretation of scripture is important over time. And I'm going to argue uh, for uh, even the reformers uh, how seriously they took uh, looking at it, the interpretation of scripture uh, over a long period of time. Um, three, understanding Christianity in different cultures. A lot of what I'm going to uh, I'm coming to you uh, primarily as a historian, even though I've done uh, many of the biblical and theological courses in my master's degree as well. Uh, but I'm going to try to give you what a historian, as a historian and, and almost sociologist, looks at uh, church history as well. Um, and then, of course, um, the story of Esther, God sustains his church. Uh, despite the church's frequent efforts to betray its uh, savior and its own high calling. So the response, uh, Noel says, is really gratitude and humility. So here's, here's the six turning points which are on your sheet but that I'm uh, looking to do. Uh, we'll see. Maybe we, we only get through the first <laughs> two by the time we uh, see the material. I, I want to have the response from you as well, right? This is a, a bit interactive even though I'm uh, putting something on the table. Uh, so the birth of Christianity, uh, we need to start with uh, establishing Christian teaching organizations saying, who are we? Uh, who is Christ, uh, and so forth. From this come all the earliest creeds. Um, development of early Christianity. I wanted to show how Augustine uh, responds to the idea that uh, the Roman Empire falls, and many pagan writers are blaming uh, Christianity as not taking this world seriously. And Augustine, of course, not only uh, addresses that in his City of God, but really gives uh, the sense of what history and its meaning is. So God is in history revealing himself. So we'll do that. Um, third, um, Mark, uh, under Mark Knoll, I did a master's thesis on Wessel or Wessel Hansefort, uh, and he was part of the Bruders van het Gemeene Leven in Dutch, uh, the Brethren of the Common Life, and he was really a precursor. Uh, to the Reformation. Also, uh, I've done uh, several times art history courses, and uh, what we're really going to look at here is the element of finding uh, Christ the man, and the most, after the Bible, the most well-read devotional book uh, is Thomas Akempis's Imitation of Christ in so many languages and, and so many publishers. And so that whole idea of rediscovering Christ in a personal way really sets up uh, the reformers, which is the third uh, level. And that way, too, uh, because there's just so much to say about Luther and Calvin, I wanted to devote a whole time to them uh, with the uh, precursor discussion before. It's really hard after that to say, where are we going? <laughs> Uh, but uh, if you know the history of scientific revolution in the 17th century, the Enlightenment in the 18th century, uh, we can talk a lot about the loss of faith and loss of mystery and so forth. But I think it's a very significant turning point um, post-French Revolution, 1815, when the Napoleon's defeated in Waterloo, uh, that there's a whole movement of uh, state churches which are falling apart and free churches uh, and denominations growing. And it's a very uh, important time when uh, revivals are happening, not only in America, but in Europe. And a lot is being uh, done as 
literacy. Uh, you talk about Gutenberg and the Renaissance as the great literary thing, but not many people are reading or can even afford a book. But the 19th century is the reading generation starting after 1830. <laughs> we'll do that. Then, where do you go after that? Well, we've, done, we've come so far already. I think it's still significant to talk about world evangelism uh, in uh, post-colonial uh, states, uh, the spread of the gospel um, in many languages, the feeling of a globalization of Christianity uh, coming out of these uh, different movements here. So uh, that's that's the goal. Uh, whether we get to all of it, we'll see how that works. I, I want to have some things that they have to invite me back sometime, right? So we're going to leave some great questions. Um, th this course, um, rather than just tell you a lot of things, um, I want to ask questions, and so that when you look at material, um, you're kind of looking for answers, right? And, and so hopefully these are good questions uh, that arise out of this material. Um, where is Christ in each generation? Again, this is where our, our Book of Esther study uh, is certainly relevant to talk about Christians. You know, it's, it's so hard. We like to define people who are like us, so if there's certain buzzwords... Um, evangelicals are very good at this, you know, listening carefully to a, to discern real Christians from others. And uh, fortunately, though, I've lived in five countries and worshipped in four languages myself. And so um, I, I, I travel in time as well, right? So in, in space and time. And so um, I'm aware of that. And so we want to look back at history. And it's very difficult uh, to judge these things. The, the heart is what God judges. But we need to look at the contextualization. What is culture? Uh, and how does that look different uh, in different ways? How are Christians influenced by the world around them, right? Uh, we know our uh, Romans 12 verse about... Um, the mercies of God and present your bodies a living sacrifice. Don't be conformed to this world, uh, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind and so forth. And of course, uh, implicit in this, we're going to see through this history, um, Christians are always uh, part of a culture, uh, but they're also Christians. And it's a, a beautiful thing. I've found some nice passages uh, in the early church about how this uh, mix uh, is really there. Um, Three more questions, and then we'll get on to some material. Um, how do we discern true Christian, this is the question I had before, communal, covenantal, personal commitment beyond institutional involvement? I mean, that's, that, that's going to get very difficult anywhere from the early church where Protestants normally uh, accept a lot of that, and then there's a big gap, right, between 300 and, and 1,500. Uh, so how do you discern God working? Uh, what do Christians look like in the Middle Ages? That's another whole thing we can study uh, after, but it's a good question to ask. Um, what is normative practice? This is always uh, important, you know, just because you can find uh, something that the Jews or early Christians are doing, um, do we still do that? And of course, in our church, we make the commitment to the four parts of the liturgy, but this has roots in history, a very historical thing. So what is normative uh, and what is not? And then lastly, um, why does God appear to be silent, right? So uh, these are the questions we have. Now, there's two ways we can look at it. So, so anything we think we know about uh, Christian history, we have to ask, so how do you know, right? It's an epistemological question. Uh, there is internal, um, of, of course, um, uh, stressed here, 
uh, in a, a church situation, divine revelation uh, in Scripture. <clears throat> We're going to learn uh, when we come to the Reformation that it was very clear to the Reformers that merely reading the Word uh, in terms of the text uh, was not quite enough. The ministry of the Holy Spirit uh, and the text is the Word of God. So we'll look at those things. And then external uh, uh, ideas here. Um, early Christian sources, um, it, it's a struggle. Uh, it wasn't until 367 that Athanasius had uh, promoted a list of books that make it into the New Testament. There were plenty of other holy writings around that told us a lot about the life of the church, even though they're not canonical, right? So we can look at uh, those. And, of course, non, uh, non-Christian non sources are very important. They're hard to find. Of course, as most of you know, in our own lifetime, the, the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls was a real uh, uh, interest, uh, very important uh, moment. But Josephus, for example, uh, is probably the most reliable non-Christian uh, source talking about these things in his Jewish antiquities. He mentions Jesus, right? Uh, and the uh, condemnation of the one James by the Jewish Sanhedrin. This James, says Josephus, was the brother of Jesus, the so-called Christ, right? So he's uh, acknowledging these things outside of our own context. Tacitus, one of the greatest uh, Roman historians, uh, uh, and talks about uh, Nero uh, blaming Christians for the fire. Nero fastened the guilt on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, for whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of Pontius Pilate and a most mischievous superstition thus checked by the moment again broke out among Judea the first source of the evil but even in Rome so uh, uh, what I'll try to also do is leave a couple of references to great books you want to read further Um, F.F. Bruce uh, has a very good book on this uh, and a couple of other books. Uh, so the importance of history, um, uh, getting out of our own culture to pass interpretations. Christopher Hall, uh, Reading Scripture with the Church Fathers, uh, is a great book. Uh, I went to school in Toronto with Daniel Williams, who's at Baylor now. Um, and he's done a lot of books, but one of them, Evangelicals and Tradition, Formative Influence, uh, and it's a source book uh, that does a, a lot of good work. Um, I reviewed this book uh, for, uh, a, uh, for a journal, uh, Galatians and Ephesians. So there's a whole commentary of reading scripture with the Reformation uh, uh, theologians. Um, Anthony Lane, by the time we get to the Reformation, has done a lot of work on the connection and the importance that Calvin shows for uh, the early church and even the medieval theologians uh, who often maybe go by the wayside. Uh, there's, If you um, looked uh, him on YouTube, there's a whole lecture that you can look at, and he does a very good job and recognize. Um, I often use this one, um, Joel Beakey, uh, from a Dutch Reformed background in, uh, in, um, uh, Grand, uh, in uh, Grand Rapids, uh, has a really nice book on John Calvin, 365 Days of Calvin, and the unique passages, and then you, you have a commentary of what Calvin thinks of that verse. So there's, there's, there's ways and means to get back there to read uh, with the church fathers. 
Again, just a few more things that Noel sets the stage, and I wanted to use that here. Um, he reminds us of Psalm 90. Uh, Lord, you've been in uh, our dwelling place throughout the generations. Uh, teach us to number our days aright, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Make us glad for all the days we have, you have afflicted us, for as many years you have, uh, we have seen trouble. May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. May the favor of the Lord, our God, rest upon us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. And very often we read that for today, but I think if you read this in light of 2,000 years now, right, that each generation can be saying this, um, the study of church history uh, makes a lot more sense to know that that's, that's in the background. Okay, so perspective, right? <laughs> You've seen these timelines. Um, the Orthodox Church and the Roman Catholic Church in the early centuries um, had a big um, struggle uh, between uh, w which is the mainstream, right? And here we can easily see at the very bottom uh, the Old Testament faithful and then, of course, the undivided church uh, early on. Um, and then, uh, of course, they show some divisions early on on the left side of uh, Jewish divisions. Uh, but then, of course, uh, pretty early, uh, the divisions happening already before 1054. But they went back and forth. But in 1054, they often call it the Great Schism. Um, and the communion between Rome and Constantinople and other Orthodox churches finally breaks. So, of course, it's seen as a leaving the church, right, which is the Orthodox church. Uh, and then it uh, shows briefly Protestantism. Um, you can also find other timelines, right? So typical Protestant perspective, which isn't necessarily a Reformed perspective, uh, not long after the founding of the early church developed unorthodox practices, only a very small remnant uh, of real Christians survived until the Reformation of the 16th century. Uh, a second group well after that, which we don't have time to get into, uh, further claims the necessity of a second Reformation, um, and that's a whole variety of things uh, later on. Um, but Calvin and the Reformed um, did not fully reject the church, but claimed to reformed doctrine and practice. Calvin eagerly studied many medieval theologians. It's interesting in French, uh, I've done a lot of work on French Huguenots in the 17th century, and I think the message did get through because the French have to continually call, call the Calvinists the so-called Reformed, right? So they, uh, so that they understand uh, that they're that uh, especially the Calvinists really felt they were reforming the church, not just picking it up uh, in the early church. So back and forth. Here you can see. Uh, maybe a little bit more neutral timeline of where things are sort of happening. Um, this is a little bit more uh, uh, instructive, maybe a timeline of Christianity 1550 onward then, uh, uh, the divisions uh, within uh, churches. Uh, what's often lost, and I can't really get into it, but I'll make reference to it, is the spread of Christianity in uh, Persia and Asia. Uh, which oftentimes we just don't have enough to know uh, how important that was. Uh, so let's start with the early church. Um, what, what, first of all, from art historical standpoint, what, what, um, what are we seeing here? 
what, what's the language of the icon telling us? Who are these people? Peter and Paul, maybe. How do how do we know they're apostles? Maybe. What's what's the simple language? Okay, so you got the halo. Okay, but one of the halos different. Maybe it's not just Peter and Paul. Right. So one halo has the cross, even though it's not a full cross. And so consistently, until uh, icons are no longer used, really, by about 1400, uh, whenever you see a halo uh, with a cross, it's Jesus, right? And uh, other halos are reminding you. And the purpose of an icon uh, for them is just a pair of glasses, right? That if I put my glasses on and I stare at the glass, <laughs> right, it's, it's not going to do any of the intended thing. Uh, an icon by not looking like an exact representation, is supposed to focus uh, your attention on things beyond what you can see, right? So they're supposed to not look like a real person, uh, but carry a lot of symbolism. Uh, We first have to place the context, right? This is a historian coming in. Uh, The Roman Empire at at its extent, yeah. Who was the other guy? Okay, so yeah. Um, Well, yeah, so so of course Jesus and, uh, well... We're not exactly sure, right? Um, it, 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 um, in the early church, we'll argue that that that, um, that Paul uh, had so much to do with the development of the early church uh, beyond uh, the Gospels, uh, all the letters that I suspect it's Paul. Myself. Okay, so extent of the Roman Empire, right? So Mediterranean world. Um, it's uh, thriving. You can notice, um, uh, I'm going to bring my clicker next time, but, uh, the, the Rhine River here and the Danube River, uh, there, were really three, there were really three types of uh, groups in the early, uh, at this period. Uh, the people of the Mediterranean world, however diverse they were, uh, Greeks and Romans, most of it uh, was Greek-speaking and, Ro- and Latin-speaking, uh, but... Uh, the next group of people, which is interesting, are really a whole number of tribes of Celts. Uh, the, the Romans called them Gali, and the Greeks called them Keltoi with a K. And so that's why Celtic and Gaelic is interchangeable. They lived just above the Mediterranean peoples. They were traders. Uh, they, uh, they negotiated. They fought uh, the Mediterranean peoples, but oftentimes they gave in. And of course, Paul writes a letter to the Galatians, who were way over here at one point, Galatia, uh, because uh, we can't think of Celts as you know Ireland or Scotland alone. Uh, these, these were many, many tribes uh, throughout. Uh, not all of them left, but again, you can see where France is uh, here. Uh, it's also called Gaul, right? So Caesar goes up there and defeats the uh, many tribes, uh, Helvetia, right, which is Switzerland, uh, C-H, Helvetia, which is the official name of Switzerland, or the Belgica, which is now Belgium, right? Uh, but of course, a lot of the Celts uh, end up going over. So just a little bit about the world. But the point is, uh, for later, uh, that the third group of people above 
were Germans. Now, they didn't speak all Hochdeutsch, right? That's really from a Berlin area. Uh, it talked to somebody from the Schwarzwald who speaks Schwabish, right? And they're just like, I don't speak or, or Schweizerdeutsch. You know, they, it's very different. But they're German speaking. Even time of the Reformation, the Germans were an area of about 300 different sovereign groups, right? So uh, even in the uh, uh, when Napoleon's defeated, it's still it's down to maybe 40, right? But uh, Germany doesn't come together until the 19th century. So, but the Germans are fierce. Um, Caesar doesn't want to go there. He tries, uh, burns the bridges behind him, and says it's not worth it. Heads over to England and finds the Scots not worth it either, so it builds Hadrian's Wall, uh, just for Robert, yeah. Um, he, he, he told me to put that in there. I, okay. <laughs> okay, so I, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on, on Jesus, but uh, very often... Uh, yeah, I, yeah. I, <laughs> let Preston have this. Uh, but, of course, most people don't know his name wasn't Jesus, right? The, so I had to sort of put it there, right? His... Uh, he comes from, uh, from uh, travel to Bethlehem uh, after the census, as you know. He's not born in zero or dies in zero, right? So uh, somewhere anywhere from 7 to uh, uh, 2 B.C. Uh, most likely is crucified in 33. Um, his name, Jesus, comes from Latin. Often uh, J's and I's are the same, so Iesu. Uh, but his real name, of course, is Joshua. Um, and he's the son of Joseph, so his real name is Joshua Bar Joseph, right? So Ibn in, uh, uh, in uh, Arabic is son of uh, Mac, right? Son of, or Fitz uh, in the Norman name, Fitzgerald, son of, right? So it's very common. He was of the Davidic line of Mary, but uh, so a little bit of the area there. Uh, once again, how do we know <clears throat> as a historian? Again, I'm always uh, standing here coming forward. Um, it's interesting, of course, that there's the internal uh, scripture. Uh, Matthew quotes uh, Micah, uh, uh, many prophecies, as we know, uh, that, O Bethlehem, uh, little among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth one who's ruler of Israel. We've heard those things. Uh, it's also interesting, though, that uh, throughout the ancient world, among uh, things like reading the liver to know the will of the gods or other things, uh, stars and astronomy was always important, the idea of the changing of the stars. And we do see in Scripture a reference to that. And again, uh, love to hear more of a sermon on that. Like Esther, there's probably a lot behind it. But the, the fact is, uh, I think the point I wanted to make as a historian is, is God's in history, right, in nature. And uh, we have to open our eyes uh, to see that. So the three wise men, of course, uh, have the star, and it's open to everyone. <clears throat> um, so Jesus, of course, uh, again, uh, maybe uh, not completely known, the word Christ uh, is Christos in Greek, which is the equivalent of Messiah or Messiah uh, in uh, Hebrew, right? So by calling him Jesus Christ, uh, then it's a, it's a title of divinity, uh, that is quickly well known, right? And so uh, the other thing I find uh, very interesting is how many parables God, uh, Jesus spoke. And it's part of the 
ways and means often that many of the wise philosophers would use at the time as well. Uh, so Jesus uh, both fits into cultures and challenges them and steps outside of it. So back and forth we go. Um, Last Supper again, uh, we know Jesus is crucified. Uh, The historical part of this, I I wanted to at least uh, make a recognition of this as we uh, look at the early church. Okay. Uh, Obviously, apart from the eventual canon of the New Testament uh, and the Gospels, which are stories of Jesus, of course, Paul Uh, is a very important person who takes the Gospels to the Gentiles. So a lot of what we're looking at here in this course is really Gentile Christian history uh, over time, Um, using the mission, uh, which is a great, uh, has some power in this case. uh, All this time, Saul was breathing down the necks of the master's disciples out for a kill. He went to the chief priests and got arrest warrants. Uh, on the outskirts of Damascus, we find he was suddenly dazed by a blinding flash of light. As he fell to the ground, he heard a voice, Saul, Saul, why are you out to get me? Um, I like a lot of these Caravaggio pictures are so expressive of so in the Baroque period. That should be Paul's conversion then by Caravaggio. Uh, uh, sorry, uh, yes, yes. I don't know why I said Peter. Thank you. I'm going to change that. I don't know even why I wrote that in there. Thanks. We got an educated group here. Uh, so uh, Saul, uh, becoming Paul, not Peter, um, he said, uh, who are you, Master? I'm Jesus, uh, the one you're hunting down. I want to... Uh, get up and enter the city, so he went to Aeneas' house. So here is an interesting, uh, this was the actual house that becomes a chapel after and has been preserved over time, uh, which is very interesting. Now, here's where we sort of depart a little bit. Um, We all know when we read Acts that uh, Paul uh, goes to Athens and he interacts with the people of the time. I think the point I wanted to make here is that uh, Christianity... Uh, the, the Christians in all cultures uh, often use the th- thought patterns, structure, and elements of their culture. Uh, they try to transform them, right? But in fact, that's often where they start. So we see Paul doing this. Um, he goes there in Athens to the unknown God. And this is a little picture of this statue saying, of all the gods you have, as you know, polytheism in Athens, but heavy philosophy, uh, that they still were wise enough to have an altar to an unknown God. And that's exactly what he has here. Uh, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, uh, does not live in shrines made by man. So I thought that was uh, very interesting. We see too, uh, perhaps through scripture, now I don't want to say I don't want to say the um, writers of Scripture are following philosophy and can't think of something themselves, right? But they're willing, uh, perhaps like the the woman at the well, Jesus has water and then uh, uh, uses a transition. Uh, We can often see uh, the understanding of the time. If most of you, I won't go into it, Plato's cave, right? He's trying to understand how we live in this world and there's possibly a a real uh, world out there outside the cave. Uh, now we see through a, a, a glass or a, a dim a, a mirror dimly, uh, but then face to face. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness will not overcome it. 
um, and again, use of reason for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. And we're going to see later on, uh, philosophy was leading people down a very similar road that later on, not only Paul, but Augustine uh, is going to reflect on uh, in that way. So Paul's missionary journeys, um, uh, mostly around the Greek-speaking world, uh, leaving Jerusalem at the bottom, uh, heading up uh, to Antioch, the second city that had great recognition as a holy place uh, right here. Uh, and then uh, spending a lot of time in modern-day Turkey, right here, many churches, and then, of course, the Greek churches, and eventually uh, his last place is, uh, he's taken to Rome, right? so he goes to Rome. Um, so, uh, in fact, in terms of the canon of the New Testament, we can see all the places he visited. He wrote letters to them, the Galatians, uh, to Ephesians, Philippians, uh, Colossians, two letters to the Thessalonians, two to the Corinthians, and then one to the Romans. Uh, just not to forget about this, right? That Christianity, uh, there's five holy cities. In fact, if you're doing uh, kids' stories, uh, let me see how we do this. Uh, you, would, you, would, uh, you, would, you would go this way, right? So backwards. So you had Alexandria, Jerusalem, Antioch, Constantinople, and then there's a big gap because you have Rome on the other side, right? So we have to remember that uh, uh, Alexandria and heading into the heart of Africa, the Nile River, was extremely important. You can see Coptic Christians come from this, uh, from Cairo. Uh, today there's 16 million uh, Coptic Christians, uh, which are often not really that well known by many North Americans. Uh, when we hear these things. Um, Coptic Christians were responsible for uh, practicing their Christianity in monastic ways, uh, going into the desert like uh, Christ had done for 40 days. They'd go for 40 years sometimes, right? And so Coptic Christians were very important. Again, um, we don't necessarily look back and look at everything they said and thought of the time uh, as normative elements that we want to accept today, perhaps, but uh, they uh, paved the way in very important ways. Uh, St. Anthony the Great uh, was very important. Um, red martyrdom meant that you died for your faith, so you gave up your blood. Oftentimes called white martyrdom was often not dying, but in fact sometimes harder living in a way that you denied all the pleasures of this world in order to do mission, uh, be celibate, whatever those things are. So the distinction between uh, red and white martyrdom became very important. Uh, also, uh, the monks gave us this sense in Christianity of being pilgrims. Uh, John Bunyan, of course, plays this in the songs that we might hear about being a wayfaring stranger, but it becomes very important uh, that uh, mirroring what the monks had understood uh, in their life in harsh uh, conditions uh, set out this sense of being pilgrims in this world. Uh, Coptic Christians as well uh, had the school, uh, as a lot of you know, the great library in Alexandria, probably the greatest in the world, burned down, right? So historians are, are always look back on this uh, with what if we had uh, Alexandria. 
but uh, they had a famous school there, so we're uh, dependent on a lot what happened. Origin, uh, a name you might know, is probably one of the most important. Uh, he spent a lot of time evangelizing Jews uh, in Palestine with a message that Jesus fulfilled all the promises of the Old Testament exposition uh, of the Bible day by day, chapter by chapter was very, very important. Um, eventually, though, again, we can see these things, uh, the perfection of Christians in any one culture. His teachings on certain things became controversial. Uh, the pre-existence of souls, uh, final reconciliation of all creatures, uh, and so forth. These things were oftentimes going around, and as we do know, uh, the uh, Egyptian area there had a penchant to not quite accept Jesus as fully, fully God, and hence later on the Arian controversy arises generally out of this Alexandrian school, right? So, but it is interesting that th there's, it's not one culture, I wanted to point that out, right? That each of these regions are different, the languages, the the, the tendencies within the culture to go off here or go off there, right? So that's why we need world global Christianity for each of us to keep each other's back, right? Saying, you know, you Americans and your, you know, in your uh, 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 fight for money and position and so forth and, and back and back and forth, right? So that reminds us. Now, Tertullian um, often gets the curmudgeon award <laughs> uh, of uh, trying to answer certain things, but uh, no doubt is extremely important, so I don't put him here as not what not, you know, not what to do. Um, he's like Augustine. Uh, he's not an early believer. He's uh, in Carthage. Carthage, as you know, is in uh, North Africa, where Hipp uh, Hippo is close by where Augustine was bishop. Uh, so very close. Uh, the Carthaginians, if you remember, are old culture of Phoenicians. Uh, the Romans called them Punici, and that's the Punic Wars that uh, made Rome what it is later. Uh, so uh, Carthage is a very important place, and he's wealthy, educated, uh, exercised all the passions that the Romans uh, could offer at the time. Uh, struck with the courage of Christian martyrs, he converts. Um, in that sense, he, the pendulum swings the furthest it can go. He totally rejects philosophy, no value uh, to Christian philosophy at all, uh, to Christian theology, becomes the great apologist at the time. Um, the father of Latin Christianity, however, because he's on that side. Um, and he's really the one, uh, we'll maybe raise this later, the famous phrase, what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? And of course, Jerusalem represents God's revelation to the Jews. Athens is supposed to represent uh, the, the, well, the, the great philosophies that come, right? So back and forth we go. He also, though, is obviously extremely important because he's the one that was the first to define what the Trinity was, right? So the early church believed in the Trinity without being able to articulate completely what that meant. And of course, when you're arguing in Latin and Greek at the same time, uh, as most of you know, you can translate words, but they're never completely the same, right? So it's going to be a problem over time. Uh, but in terms of uh, heretics, uh, and I'm going to show you a map later on, that um, there are as many heretics, we would say heretics, maybe more in the early church than are faithful believers of things we thought. And that's where, of course, a lot of Protestants 
uh, don't study it a little further to understand what happened uh, after that. But he names philosophy and he uses uh, this idea of don't be beguiled by philosophy, right? And that indeed, uh, he, the famous phrase, what does uh, Athens have to do with Jerusalem? Well, the spread of Christianity is not a hegemony. It doesn't, it doesn't move like a, a reverse of bullseye, right, from one spot out, right? Certain places, uh, for, for extremely concept, uh, complex reasons, accept Christianity first. So the darker, the darker areas there, kind of in that uh, orange, are the first places where Christianity seems to be spreading. Um, and uh, eventually it's Christianized, but... In fact, unlike what we often think that Christianity starts at the Mediterranean and goes north, oftentimes it doesn't go very far north and it recedes. And Christianity in often uh, England and Ireland and Scotland uh, is, is sending monks to northern Europe where Christianity is spread. So uh, it's not a smooth transition for uh, the spread of Christianity. Uh, also, you can see major churches or major monasteries that are growing, but we won't spend much time on those. Oh, but as I said before, uh, the, the five principal cities that became recognized as places where... Um, apostles had been and Christian teaching is going on were important are Alexandria, Jerusalem, Antioch, Constantinople, and Rome. And of course in the book of Acts we know the struggle between Jerusalem where there's more uh, uh, Hebraic Jewish Christians wanting to be Orthodox and, and now they're Christians, right? And uh, Antioch, where they're Greek-speaking, uh, they're Jews from New York who are Reformed, and they become Christians. And, of course, right away, there's a struggle about eating meat and, and those sorts of things. So we do know some of that. Um, oh, boy. I love it. Got it off course. <laughs> the picture of a tower I took in Ireland. I don't know where that came from. Uh, come on back. Come on back. Okay, so something cut out here. Just a second. If we do um, control F7, okay, yes, that kicked out. Double screen again. Okay, good. So now we'll go back to uh, current slide. All right. Never had that kick out before. All right. So uh, Tertullian, of course, uh, we saw him. We saw this one, right? We saw this one. All right. So. Uh, Christianity in Asia, too, right? Um, we don't know a lot about this. Uh, in the last 25 years, we've known a lot more. Uh, and Nelson, uh, of course, Jennings has told us a lot about this and other visitors we've had. But we really need to be aware uh, of how, how, how much Christianity spread. Uh, Twelve apostles. Uh, Thomas uh, goes to India, baptizes people. They go on, St. Bartholomew. Uh, others, like the Greek philosopher, theologian, uh, goes to Alexandria and then India. Uh, the Syrian monk uh, makes it all the way to the capital of China, right? And so just to throw that out there, that we, we need to remember that uh, Christianity doesn't merely grow in, uh, in the Mediterranean world in Europe. Uh, just a, a figure, um, Rodney Stark, uh, if you ever want a sociologist look, Rodney Stark for 25 years was a, one of the most recognized sociologists of religion, was not a Christian, had a conversion experience, and uh, 
began to look into uh, Christianity from a sociological standpoint. So his book, The Rise of Christianity, is a very interesting take on this, and he gives us a lot of statistics. Uh, Christianity, at least in the Roman Empire, is very, very small. Uh, It's being persecuted. You can see that uh, no real rise of Christianity occurs until Constantine, who's a Roman emperor, uh, is the first to convert to Christianity. And uh, shortly after that, uh, the rise of Christianity is certainly there. Uh, Today in the world, just uh, a quick look at that, you know, the numbers of Christians. What strikes you, however, which you know, is that Christianity below the equator is growing rapidly. And we see places like Brazil, Mexico, Nigeria, Philippines, right, right away. Uh, we're looking at the greatest numbers of Christians. And of course, uh, Christianity in Europe is failing. Now, what this doesn't show you here is that oftentimes, I know if you look at France, uh, they're showing a lot of Christians, but um, attendance at mass for Catholics, you know, down to two percent, and more Muslims in France than Protestants today. Uh, it's a really different picture of how one uh, defines a Christian, who's a Christian, and so forth. But you can see here from another good place to understand uh, the spread of Christianity. What's going on is the is the Pew Research Center. You can go online and Google that. It gives you a lot of statistics about where Christianity is in the world. A lot of they do a lot of statistical things on what Christians think and so forth. Just to throw that out there as well. All right, so we're going to start with the first thing. So here we have Jews. Paul takes the gospel to Gentiles. Okay, so they're a group of Gentiles. They're not ethnically Jewish. So what are they going to call themselves? Right. Well. Uh, as you know, the English language doesn't really get going to around 1200. There is no church, right? Uh, there's no, no, there's no language of that. So what, are, what do people actually call it? We, we like to, in English say, oh, the early church, right? And we miss how important their name is. Uh, Jesus says, uh, you know the uh, the argumentative uh, passage here where Catholics read it one way and, and Protestants the other, but he says. Uh, Peter, upon this rock, I build my church, right? So if we look to the Greek, it's ecclesiam, and the Latin is ecclesiam, from which we do get ecclesiastical office, ecclesiastical history. Now, let not this name be lost. <laughs> um, in the ancient world, as you know, uh, obviously the Greek uh, polius were run by warlords. They called themselves king or basalius, right? It's only in Athens around the 5th century, all your Western Civ 1 courses here. In Athens, of course, it's building up where they have archons. They start sharing in an oligarchy. By the 5th century, right, the deme, who are the people, uh, the archons or elected officials, we finally have what we call democracy, right? So uh, it's, it's a government of the people. Now, how representative it was, we don't know. But the experimentation and the, uh, the uh, among, uh, and of course, not everyone could, could be, be elected or vote. You had to be a male of a certain age. That particular group who could vote and it wasn't wealth, and it wasn't opportunity, and it wasn't anything. It was just because you were a resident there, you got the right to vote. That group 
is then called the ecclesia in Greek, right? So in the very early church, you're, you're looking for a powerful word that people get quickly. And it's the one time, right, in history, and people would know their history a little bit at that time, what, which, what, what kind of word can I use that says, we're a group of people, unlike the world around you, that's not built on rank, you know, ethnicity, wealth, education, whatever. We are the ecclesia of God, right? We are here because what we are. So it's a very powerful word, I think, uh, that is used. And it it shows you how in history uh, that the culture around could be used by God in a very powerful way. Um, Why, you know, from a sociological, anthropological, and historical situation, why is Christianity in the Roman Empire especially um, quite attractive. Well, social equality. Um, the Romans were practicing female infanticide, right? Very often, um, like uh, 20th century China has uh, had done, at least. And, uh, the church of Ecclesia, all equal in God's sight, uh, as Paul uh, says so clearly, right? No Greek, no slave, no free, you know, male, male or female. Uh, that uh, people have dignity, right? This Hebrew concept of being born in the image of God, right? I tell my students to try to simplify it, that it's the three C's. Um, it's not that we've got a physical image, but the ability to communicate with God, uh, the ability to uh, create like God, uh, in, in he passing, uh, uh, giving uh, commands to Adam. And of course, the most important thing, the idea of a conscience uh, where God speaks within you. So just uh, quickly uh, getting into that. Um, again, social care. Um, the idea is in Matthew 25, done to the least of my brethren, you've done it to me. Uh, in Acts, it tells a lot. Acts is the history of the early church, if there's anything. A whole congregation of believers were united in one, one heart, one mind. They didn't even claim ownership of their own possessions. They shared everything, right? And so forth and on. And the fourth thing, the promise of salvation, um, that there's an afterlife. And uh, the Greeks and the Romans were... Uh, yearning for this, really, uh, and an escape from this world. Uh, however great the Roman Empire was and the Pax Romana, there was a lot of stress among the philosophers of escaping this world and the, the problems that humanity has. And so Christianity had a very unique uh, message to uh, uh, say. Uh, here's a striking passage, too, of uh, something that's not canonical but very important, the epistle of Diod. Uh, in one thirty, For the Christians are distinguished, he says, writing about them, from other men, now get it, right, neither by country, nor language, nor customs which they arose, for they neither inhabit cities of their own, nor employ a particular form of speech, nor lead a life which is marked out by any singularity. Okay, so who are, tell me quickly, who are they then, right? It's very, the course of contact uh, which they follow has not been devised by any speculation or deliberative uh, in, uh, inquisitive men, nor do they, like some, proclaim themselves the advocates of a merely human doctrines. But inhabiting Greek as well as barbarian cities, according as a lot of them, uh, each of them has determined and followed the customs of the natives in respect to clothing, food, and the rest of their ordinary conduct, they display to us uh, their wonderful and confessingly striking method of life, right? That's, that's a beautiful message, isn't it? 
uh, here today. A little bit more. It's so good. Uh, they dwell in their own country. Uh, they they, uh, they dwell in their own uh, countries, but simply as sojourners. Again, you get that pilgrimage. As citizens, they share in all things with others, and yet endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native land, and every land of their birth is their land of strangers. They marry, as do all. They begot children, but they do not destroy their offspring. You see. They have a common table, but not a common bed. Uh, very often, uh, a lot of these temples had prostitutes, right? Um, they are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. Very interesting, right? They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws, and at the same time, surpass the laws by their lives, right? That's in that beautiful thing, too. They love all men and are persecuted by all. Uh, when punished... They rejoice as if quickened into life. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners and are persecuted by the Greeks. Yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. To sum it all up in one word, what is the soul, what the soul is to the body that the Christians uh, in the world, right? And you can find that on uh, Christianity.com. Uh, I particularly found that. I'm, tr I'm trying to get sources that you can easily get to. But I think it's very powerful uh, uh, words there. You can sort of read that uh, very often. Now, even Rodney Stark right, says, well, yeah, but how did the Romans look at the Christians often? Right? Yeah, the, the flip side. Um, atheism. Now, of course, Socrates was accused of atheism because he didn't believe in the gods that the Athenians had put in their back pocket, right? So he was the true believer in the gods, went to the oracle, and was the wisest man because he, uh, he said he didn't uh, know anything. Uh, in this case, too, disbelief in Roman gods would make you an atheist. Cannibalism was an interesting one because they heard stories because they didn't see it. It was done in secret. Did you hear they're eating the flesh and drinking the blood, right, of Jesus? So there's all kind of twisted stories. Uh, corrupting the morals, the second thing that Socrates was accused of because he was having uh, students uh, of his uh, question things. Uh, corrupting the family as well, right, um, and so forth. Um, as we know, um, persecution in the early church was certainly there. Uh, it could be overdone, it could be underdone. Uh, it, it was waves, right? It wasn't just one persecution. Sometimes Christians did well, other times they didn't. Uh, Nero, uh, who burned the city down, was especially looking for scapegoat. Um, others were probably, uh, at the very end, it's Diocletian. Uh, who had the greatest uh, number of persecutions at the end. Uh, you know, it, it's a kind of romantic picture, but if you read about the early church, they really did uh, put people on crosses and then light them up for a kind of, you know, <laughs> a pyrotechnic show. And, and many were fed to lions and so forth in these very brutal uh, uh, places of uh, gladiators and, and, and horse, uh, hippo, right, is a horse. It's a hippodrome is where you race horses, kind of like a, 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 a velodrome is where you race bicycles, right? So the drome part, too. This is Nero, of course, um, in this case. Tell me when I need to... Oh, is it is it time to cut? Yeah, okay, okay. We're going to stop with Nero. Um, maybe is it more... Okay, so one more positive thing instead of Nero. Again, you can see I like Caravaggio. 
this, of course, is the crucifixion, this time of St. Peter. Where, where, where's our checker here? Um, and uh, he does a very good job of uh, presenting uh, these uh, early um, ideas, too. So I'm going to stop there. Um, come back next week. <laughs>